Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. So it's usually lumped together with the book of Colossians, considered one of the later epistles of Paul. It's not clear if this is written to the Ephesians or not. That does not appear in the oldest manuscripts. So we're not certain to whom this was written. It may be a book written to a general area. Some people have said that this might be actually the letter to Laodicea that Paul mentions, I think in Corinthians. Um, but Ephesians is a pretty old attestation that it was written to the churches of Ephesus, but not in the oldest manuscripts. So we may not know to whom this was written. And that's not unusual for Paul. Paul often sent his letters um, by couriers, by individuals to regions, expecting them to be read in multiple churches. And the odds are that the churches in Ephesus were one of the churches that this particular epistle was written to. The only other academic thing that I want to say is that Paul, this is one of the few of Paul's epistles, that he doesn't mention any co-writers. So in most of his epistles, he'll mention somebody else who's writing with him, uh, whether it's Timothy or somebody else. And in this one, it's just Paul. So my perspective, just so that you know, as we go through this series on Ephesians, is that this is an epistle written by Paul later in his ministry um, at a time in which the church has need to, needed to organize itself um, to a degree because of the success of the gospel spread. And Paul, I think here in the book of Ephesians, is in some ways trying to explain to this growing Christian movement in whatever region uh, what the church is and how it should develop and what it's not. And so really this series through the book of Ephesians is a series on what theologians call ecclesiology. So this is a word about the church, a study of the church. And so I think the heart of the book of Ephesians is to explain what the church is so that as the church develops and becomes, as the church becomes a, a community, an established community, on this side of eternity, in this world. What is it? What should it look like? How does it structure itself? These are questions I think Paul is interested in, in the book of Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians is gonna be our window into trying to understand what some scholars would call the economy of God. The way in which uh, God understands the structure of the world and what he is asking us to do to structure ourselves in it. So we're going to look specifically at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 14 today. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14, they are a pronouncement of God's blessedness. Most Hebrew blessings begin with the phrase, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe. Now, it's not the person who's declaring the blessing is not blessing God. The blessed is in the passive tense. It's proclaiming the blessedness of God. And then each blessing is followed by um, something to bless God for. What I want you to notice as we begin reading Ephesians 1 is that Paul begins with that same phrase. He'll use in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who? And then it will go on to say what he's done. And that's this whole sentence. <laughs> so in, in some ways, this is the beginning of a Jewish blessing of sorts for Paul. It's also the way Jesus taught us to begin to pray. When our Father, 
who is in the heavens, blessed be your name. And the book of Ephesians is beginning with a blessing, with a declaration of the blessedness of God for some very particular things. You might say that this is a uniquely Christian barachot. It's Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. So you'll notice here before we get to verses 3 through 14, which is this blessing that Paul is proclaiming about God and Jesus and the work that God has done through the Son in the world and then has resulted in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the, the beginning of the church, all of that. Paul wants to emphasize that he is an apostle. Paul's emphasis is that his apostleship is not something that he sought or that he accomplished. It wasn't a reward for his effort. He wants to declare right here at the beginning that he is an apostle, and the word apostle means one who is sent, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the sense is sent by Jesus, by the will of God. So Paul's emphasis at the beginning, and this is going to become important throughout the book, is that he has been sent by Jesus by the will of God, that his election to this office had nothing to do with his free will or his choices. This was something that God had asked him to do. And so by setting up the book this way, and Paul does this frequently in his books, he is saying to us, what I'm telling you in this text, God has asked me to tell you. This is the message that's been entrusted to me and I am now delivering it to you. That idea of his election to this office is foundational for part of how he views the church. But let's move on to verse three. So verse three, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the blessings that are coming here are spiritual blessings, not meaning spirituality like in a secular way. Spiritual has to do with the spirit of God. It is in, indeed not material, and it comes from the heavens because that is where God is said to dwell. God is in 
the heavens, right? And Jesus teaches to pray that our father who is in the heavens. So what Paul is emphasizing here is the otherworldliness of the kingdom of Jesus. We're going to see this theme. Paul won't use in the book of Ephesians the word kingdom, at least not that I can recall. If he does, it's sparse. But the idea of the kingdom of God being a kingdom not of this world is what he's emphasizing here. God has not blessed them from earthly kingdoms. The blessings that God has poured out on people in this time between the times are coming from the heavens, not from a nation on the earth. If you have those Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 18, uh, verses 33 uh, to 38. So this is when Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And Pilate entered the headquarters. This is verse 33. Again, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? Jesus' emphasis here is, if he was interested in establishing a kingdom on earth, he would have operated very differently than he did when he died on the cross. As he says to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this earth, my people would be fighting. But they are not fighting because my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, and I think this is implied in Jesus' words, I didn't come to establish a kingdom on this earth. I came to testify to the truth. And then Pilate, what is truth? And Jesus doesn't respond to that, nor should he, because Pilate is uh, playing games with him. God's kingdom is not of this world. Turning back to Ephesians, Paul's emphasis here is that the blessings that come on the church do not come from a nation of the earth. They are coming, they are spiritual blessings coming from the spirit of God in the heavenly places, which is where the kingdom of God is. It's in the heavens. Second question that comes out of this first verse, who's the us? Who does he mean by we? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who's the us? Is that the church? Is that all Christians? Is it Israel? That's one of the most common uh, readings that you'll get from commentaries and theologians, is that this is Israel. The us is Israel. That's who Paul's speaking about. And you're going to get that clearly later on, that something about Israel is, is, is built up here, because he will later say, you Gentiles. He will later say that. So maybe something about Israel. Is he speaking out about a specific subgroup of Israel? Like, is he speaking about the apostles? He started out the book saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We, us, does he mean apostles? Is he talking about the remnant 
throughout Paul's writings, especially in the book of Romans, and we see this all through the First Testament, there's this idea that there's always a remnant chosen by grace, that even when an entire generation goes apostate and rebels against God, that God ensures that some do not rebel against him. And the remnant is always preserved. We see that story in, in the story of Elijah, particularly, and that's what Paul picks up on in Romans chapters 9 and 10, for instance, to talk about the remnant. There is always a remnant chosen by grace. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul associates himself with part of that remnant. So is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about a subset of Israel, like particularly the apostles, or a broader sub? group of Israel, the remnant, those who put faith in Jesus. Who's he speaking of? It's an important question. I think Paul is talking about what he will call in Romans 9, true Israel. True Israel. So let's look at Romans chapter 9. So in Romans chapter 9, the struggle Paul is having is that he has promised that God will never forsake his people, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. But he realizes that the majority of those who call themselves Jewish, who have been God's people since the time of Sinai, were rejecting Jesus. And that creates a dilemma for him. Well, if, if we are secure like this, then why are so many who are Jewish not following Jesus? It certainly looks like they're not secure. So Paul goes in, in chapter 9, verse 1, to say this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. And then he addresses the Israel question. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. It is not as though the word of God had failed, and here's this, this distinction between Israel and true Israel, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. And not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is what the promise said, about this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Nor is that all. Something similar happened to Rebekah when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac, even before they had been born or had done anything good or bad so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, but by his call. She was told the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. Now, historically, many have had difficult time not thinking about personal salvation in this passage. But my insistence, and I think this is going to come out here in Ephesians as well, is that Paul is recognizing that 
there is a group within the mass of humanity that God selects out for the purpose of declaring his glory to the rest. That group at many times and seasons has no choice. Now, it's not that they don't have choices, but they have no choice about this election. Jacob, for instance, was chosen before he was born. Jeremiah says the same thing about himself. Paul says the same thing about himself uh, in the book of Galatians. Chosen before they were born. For what? To be saved? Not specifically. To declare the glory of God. Pharaoh had the same task. His heart was hardened so that God's glory could be known through the plagues of Egypt. Jacob's heart is softened so that he could proclaim God's story as part of the descendancy of Abraham and the development of the Jewish people. So what Paul is recognizing is that not all Abraham's children are indeed Israel. And that's plain enough because Abraham also had Ishmael, but Ishmaelites are not children of the promise. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, but it's only Jacob's children that are children of the promise. And that was a decision made by God before anybody had done anything or had even been born. And then Jacob had 12 sons, all who become part of the people of Israel, but some of them in the Exodus get cut off and thrown away because they rebel against God's authority and Moses. So there are always remnants, people who remain faithful, but there are also people who walk away. So what Paul is beginning to say in Romans, and I think it's going to play here in Ephesians, is that true Israel is what Paul will later call in Romans, the vine, the root. They are those elected by God to proclaim his word to the rest. And the elect don't have a choice. The elect don't have a choice. Paul sees himself as part of that. They don't have a choice about whether or not to proclaim the words they've been given. Now, they do have choices. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9 that he beats his body and makes it his slave so that after having preached to others, he himself will not be disqualified for the prize. So there is a sense for Paul that even though he had no choice but to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, he does have a choice as to whether or not he does it under compulsion or he does it willingly. And there is a sense in Paul that to do it willingly is of a much greater honor than to do it under compulsion. Jesus says as much to his disciples. A servant simply does what he's told, but a child is different. So for Paul here in Romans, and, I, and then we get back into Ephesians, true Israel are those who have remained faithful to God and have been part of the process of preserving God's word in the world and the recollection of God's gospel, which really begins in Genesis and finds its fulfillment in the book of Revelation. So for Paul, I think the us is this group, true Israel, faithful Israel, not ethnic Israel, not only apostles either, but those who have remained faithful and been tasked with proclaiming the message. I think that's the us. And as we read through it, I think you'll come to agree with me. But if you don't, you should at least know what I think here. So I think that is true Israel, is the us. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, look at verse four. Just as he chose us, again, I think this is true Israel, of whom Paul is an example as an apostle, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, 
So he chose this group in Jesus before the foundations of the world, meaning that the need, the election of this group of people, God knew was necessary from before he created. This is part of the plan. He always intended to have an elect group in the world who would proclaim his glory before the foundation of the earth. And they were chosen for specific purposes here, to be holy and blameless before him in love. They are to be set apart, blameless. Now you might say, you mean without any sin? Depends. Their calling is to proclaim a message. So the message has to be blameless. I think this is a good text for inerrancy, for instance. Okay? They have to be set apart from birth, Paul will say, Jeremiah will say, David will say, right, from birth. And God will say about Jacob, from birth, set apart, and blameless. Blameless for this purpose, right? And the way it'll express itself is in chesed, in loyalty, in faithfulness to their election. So Paul is going to preach. Jeremiah, even though he doesn't want to, is going to proclaim the gospel. Jacob, even though he didn't make the decision, is going to be the one chosen by God, like it or not. Verse 5. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. We already saw, right? Paul said in Romans 9 that it was Israel who was adopted. One thing that you'll find in the New Testament consistently is that it does not teach that God is the father of everybody. He is the creator of everybody, but he's not the father of everybody. To be creator and to be father are not synonyms. So we have to be adopted into God's family. And it is Israel that is adopted into his family. That's why Paul said in Romans 9, theirs is the adoption as sons, right? He was talking about Israel. But again, true Israel, faithful Israel, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. You might say through Jesus Christ, but that's later. It's not later because Jesus was chosen. This is Pauline theology before the foundations of the world as well. Everything that happens, this is John chapter one, was created by Jesus for Jesus. So from the beginning, the election is through Jesus Christ. Moses' election is through Jesus Christ. Abraham's election is through Jesus Christ. Even though he hadn't come in the flesh, everything is through the Son. And that's the implication here. To the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, and that's in Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. So again, we have been redeemed, taken out of the world. It's another way of, of talking about adoption, but in a little different way because we've been slaves and we had to be bought. And Jesus did that through his blood. And trespasses had to be forgiven because none of these elect are perfect. None of these elect are blameless. Like Paul would say, I was the worst of sinners. And yet he's called to this holy calling as true Israel has been called. And in order for that to happen, he had to be redeemed from his hate of the church. He had to be redeemed from his slavery to the flesh. He had to be forgiven for the sins he had committed, the chief of which he says is the persecution of the church. So all that had to happen in order for him to fulfill the call that's placed on him. And he sees all of that as being done by the grace of God in Jesus. 
Here's another thing that he does for them. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. So God entrusts a message to this group, to true Israel, which is most recently seen in the apostles. He entrusts them with a mystery that they have to declare to others, but is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in Jesus, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is the first time earth comes into this conversation. Earth isn't the place where the kingdom is set up. It's the place from which things are gathered. So as we begin asking the question, what is the church? For Paul, the church is the ecclesia, the called out ones. They're being gathered from the earth. But they are not in a kingdom. They may be in kingdoms when God finds them, but they're being drawn out of that. Verse 11, in Christ, we again, this is true Israel, of which the apostles are key representatives. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance. Having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will. So that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. So here we have a definition of who Israel was meant to be and who true faithful Israel, the remnant, actually were in the world. And they were predestined to this. Now, I'm inclined to think we're not talking necessarily about individuals, but this idea of corporateness, the idea that this role has been predestined from the beginning of the world. And when God chooses an individual to fulfill this role, it's done before they're born. It's done uh, by God's will alone and not based on something that they themselves have done or achieved or earned or merited. That's the point of this. And Paul will say it is that group that is the first to hope in Christ. And that's clear enough in the Gospels. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says to him, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in the heavens. He's telling Peter, to use Paul's language, that he is true Israel, that he is the remnant, that he is elect, that he is heir of the prophets that he has been given the mystery and that's why he knows who Jesus is. And Jesus will send him to tell others who are not chosen in that way. So the church is not only true Israel. The church is true, elect Israel, the remnant, and those who have heard their message and have come into relationship with Jesus, but in a different way, through faith, not through election. Verse 13, in him you also. Now, this is this, these are the people in Ephesus. Many say that this is meant to say Gentiles, and that might be true. But Gentiles also include faithless Israel. Gentiles are all of those who do not know God, who are part of the world, and have not been called out to be bearers of the message, but instead are receivers of the message. In him, you also, when you had heard the word of truth, so they are not called before they're born, chosen before the foundation of the earth, they hear the word. 
In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. Paul has just laid out essentially what the church is. True Israel, predestined from before the foundations of the earth to bear the message of Christ, and those to whom they were sent, who have believed in the message that they were called to proclaim. This is the church. And it's gathered from the earth and sourced in the heavens. It's not a kingdom of the earth. And you might say, what does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Well, we're going to have to see how Ephesians uses that language. But somehow, and, and we see this in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on a group, that group suddenly becomes Christian. That group is suddenly recognized as accepted by God. So it begins with obviously the apostles and the early Jewish believers in Jesus at Pentecost, but then the Holy Spirit is poured out on Samaritans as well, which is a group that the early believers weren't sure God would accept. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out on Gentiles, which was a big surprise to everybody based on Peter's needing to be debriefed by the other apostles after the event occurs. And then there are some spurious followers of other prophets who hadn't yet come under the lordship of Jesus, like prophets of John the ba like disciples of John the Baptist, who also have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes this sign of God's receiving of a group. And what Paul is saying, he might even be reflecting in some ways, what happened with Cornelius and what happened with some of the other Gentiles during Paul's missionary journeys, that the Holy Spirit was poured out in you. That's how we knew you had become children of God, because this Holy Spirit had testified to your inclusion. He is the seal guaranteeing your inheritance. So I think that's what he's talking about there, the idea that God himself has to demonstrate who's acceptable, and he does that through the Holy Spirit. In previous series, you and I have talked about the fact that the evidence of the Spirit in our lives is the fruit of the Spirit being born and chesed being poured out, which, funny enough, chesed is also the way that you know true Israel, right? They were chosen to be holy and blameless in chesed, right? They were supposed to be loyal, faithful. But the Gentiles then, in this new conception of the world that's being brought to us by the gospel, are all those who were not given the words that Jeremiah was given or the insight, but who had to make a decision based on those words on whether or not they believed what God was saying through him. Those are Gentiles, technically. Many of them were ethnically Jewish. So this is a very complicated passage, isn't it? But it begins to lay the foundation of what the church is. And so what the church is essentially is a kingdom not of this world, but sourced in the heavens. The blessings that come are spiritual blessings out of the heavenly realms. So it's not a kingdom of this earth. And it's made up of two groups of people, two broad groups of people. Jew and Gentile might be the way to say it. But true Israel, who was elected before the foundation of the world to bear a message, and who were the first to believe the message when it was proclaimed because they were chosen to receive it and chosen to proclaim it. And then the other group, the Gentiles who don't remain Gentiles, but they hear the message that true Israel proclaims. They receive it. They accept it. They believe it. And they also become part of the olive tree of Israel. So this is what the church is. It's made up of these two 
groups of people. Now, true Israel is more or less codified for us in the Bible now. And it's a great question. Will God send any more apostles, any more prophets? I think he does continue to send prophets. We see that in the New Testament. But they don't write scripture. They interpret it. They, God helps them to know how to apply it to their time. And so I think that that process still seems to be open. Could God send another like the apostles who would proclaim the word of God that needs to be written down and followed for all time? I don't think so. I think Jesus has to choose those people. And I think the apostles with Paul as one unnaturally born are the last to fill that role. For now, there are elect people who are elect before the foundation of the earth. And there are those who receive their message, who become elect by their faith in Christ, and they all live together in the church. And before God, not one is not better than the other. This is what Paul means in Galatians when he says, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave or free. Before God, the mode by which you come to faith in Christ does not distinguish you. All are one in Christ. But that doesn't mean we've all come to him in precisely the same way. Some are compelled. Others choose. This is the economy of God. And the church is made up of both. You might ask yourself, well, we should figure out who's who. Well, that's the point of Galatians. You no longer need to worry about who's who because we have the word and the writings of the apostles and the prophets codified for us. So the, all of us now are in a different conversation than those in the first century were because the apostolic era in their day was open still. And now for us, I think it's closed. But knowing that this is how the church is structured is important for three reasons, and then we're done. I'm not going to expound on them very much. First, it helps you understand why we have the scriptures and why we need them. Because not all of us can hear from God the way Paul did, the way Jeremiah did, the way Moses did. God chooses those with whom he interacts with in those ways. And that group of people, true Israel, has been chosen before the foundation of the earth. And it's important to know that the scriptures serve that function for us in many ways in the church, and therefore they are foundational. And this is why they are holy and blameless and chesed and loyalty to God. The scriptures are that because they encompass the teachings of those that were called to that. So again, it helps us to find the place of the scriptures and why they have to be essential for us. Secondly, it tells us that not all people hear from God the same way. Some hear from God, others hear from those who hear from God. For the mass of humanity, the majority of us, we are those who receive their message and have to make a decision based on it. God has to enable us to understand the message. We have to truly be seeking him. But we're not the originators of the message. And maybe there's a point of humility for us to have to submit to the fact that this is God's choice and not ours. And third, we have to remember that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of this world. And yet we keep trying to carnalize it. We keep trying to concretize it. We keep trying to take what we learn from the heavens and enact it on the earth to build a system that excludes some and includes others and becomes a power structure in the world. God is not with that because it's not what the church is in this 
time between the times.